0: For voters in Colombia, a former guerrilla rebel is ahead in the race. Hello and welcome to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Tim Padgett. Luis Hernandez is out today. Why are so many Colombian expats in Florida so opposed to Gustavo Petro becoming president of their home country? We look more deeply into that upcoming election. Then we speak with the former director of the University of Miami Cuban Studies Center to examine the recent change in policy relating to the island. What do Cubans there want to see, as opposed to Cubans in Miami? Finally, the Deering Estate in South Miami-Dade County is celebrating 100 years of its historic stone house. We look at what it will take to preserve the landmark for the next century. All of that today on Sundial, after the news. The program is made possible in part by support from Miami Cancer Institute. Welcome back to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Tim Padgett. Luis Hernandez is out today. In Colombia, a former guerrilla rebel could become the country's first left-wing president. He's the most popular candidate in the polls, but by far the least popular in South Florida. Senator Gustavo Petro is is ahead in the race largely because of voter dissatisfaction with Colombia's current right-wing government. But if Petro is elected, will he be the extreme left-wing threat Colombian expats fear? Joining me now from Sarasota is Colombian political analyst Juan Pablo Salas. Juan Pablo, thanks for joining us.
1: Team, thank you very much for inviting
0: me. First, remind our listeners, Juan Pablo, who is Gustavo Petro? Gustavo Petro is a
1: long-time candidate uh, for the presidency in Colombia. He's been a congressman for many years uh, after winning uh, several elections for that position. He's tried. This is the fourth time that he's trying to become president of mm-hmm. Colombia. He is an ex-guerrilla member of the M19 which right. demobilized in 1991.
0: Right. And he's 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 been a senator. He was also the the, uh, the mayor of uh, the capital of Colombia, Bogota, for a time. No.
1: Yeah, I was for a short time because he was removed from the uh, from that position in <clears throat> in a case that uh, later on was decided by the C D I H considered a uh, a wrong. Uh, destitution.
0: Right, that being the the human rights group there in Colombia, and they decided that the scandal, supposed scandal that he was involved in, involving I think uh, had to do with garbage collection, right? Um, yeah, something like that. Something like that, and 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 but but uh, he he was cleared. But the most important aspect of this, also, as you pointed out, he's a former guerrilla of the M19 uh, rebel group there in in Colombia, um, and and that that sort of colors everyone's approach to him, fairly or not. Uh, But Petro would be Colombia's first left-wing president if he's elected. And he's still got a healthy lead in the latest voter polls, right? Why is he the favorite in Sunday's vote, do you think, Juan Pablo?
1: I think that uh, Colombia... We're having a little problem with Juan Pablo's... ...finally president when one person from the...
0: Juan Pablo, could you could you start that thought over again? We're having a little trouble with our you know, yeah. our, our Zoom connection with you.
1: Uh, how about now? Do you
0: hear me now? Yes, that's fine. That's great.
1: OK, so so car is passing by. I'm sorry so, about so, that. So, yeah. so I was
0: asking you, why is Gustavo Petro, this former leftist guerrilla? Why is he the favorite in Sunday's vote in Colombia, which uh, really has has politically has been a fairly conservative country for the past century?
1: Yeah, I think it's because the conservative uh, parties are already done with whatever they propose. There is no change. Colombia has been looking for a change for many years. And every time somebody gets close to an election, uh, something happens that's moved them, that moves them away from that decision. So I think this time is the best time and the best opportunity for somebody from the opposition party to finally reach the, the, the main position, like the presidency. There will never be another option like this, right?
0: And 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 obviously, in the past couple of years, we've seen very angry street protests raging in Colombia. A lot of it having to do with how uh, badly uh, voters there think the right-wing Uribista government, as it, as it's called, uh, has responded to the pandemic. But also, a more in a more general way, voters feeling that the right wing in Colombia just has not addressed. Colombia's lingering socioeconomic inequality, which is among the worst in the hemisphere. Why do you think the Uribistas failed so badly at that, Juan Pablo? I think that because there was a
1: compromise long time ago between the narcotraffic money and the politicians to start working together. And the Uribistas have been in power for over 20 years. So I believe that many of their politicians have been tainted by that money. And they don't want to lose power because if they lose power, many other cases that uh, make them look bad will look even worse. So I think that they're just trying to cover their uh, their bases because if the truth gets known, uh, they will look really, really bad.
0: But that doesn't really look at, at, at the aspect, Juan Pablo, of, of why, for example, why did the right wing in Colombia do so little over these these recent years that you're talking about to, for example, implement the peace plan, the 2016 peace plan that ended Colombia's half century long civil war. If, the, if I think I get the feeling that if voters felt that they had done more to impl- implement that, they politically they'd be in a better position right now.
1: I think you are right, but the, what the problem is that the right goes against the the uh, peace process. Uh, they voted against the peace process, right. and that is a is a very important moment when all these movement began to uh, to not permit anybody but. Uh, the right to win uh, elections. So right. that's uh, that's one of the the reasons why this is happening. They're again covering up the uh, basis and they don't want anybody else to let the truth right. be known. So I think they're. They're just hiding.
0: But back to Petro, the, the left wing candidate who's leading in, in the race for Sunday's presidential election. Is Petro himself, though, really the fire breathing socialista that Colombian conservatives, especially here in the Florida diaspora, insist he is? No, he is not. Uh, we need to remind people here that the M-19
1: was not really a socialist guerrilla. He was formed in that guerrilla which was a social democratic guerrilla. Why uh, in any country on the world will there be uh, a guerrilla like that? Because the power in Colombia has always been in the hands of a very few people. And during the 70s, the only way people saw about generating any change was through uh, arms. So this guerrilla evolved from being a leftist guerrilla to being a social democratic guerrilla. So I think that he learned that lesson over there Mm -hmm. and he remained a non-socialist candidate. Of course, he's a leftist, but not socialist.
0: And when Petro was mayor of Bogota, did he govern like a radical left winger? Absolutely not. He tried to
1: do some social programs, but it was never uh, something you would consider a radical leftist uh, government. Mm
0: -hmm. Now, now Petro has a double digit lead in the polls, as I mentioned, but he doesn't yet reach the 50 percent that he'd need to avoid a runoff election next month. So should we expect a second round between him and his conservative rival, former Medellin mayor Federico Gutierrez? At this point,
1: I don't know who's going to go into the second uh, round. Definitely, if there is a second round, Petro will be there. But there is also the possibility for Petro to win on the first round, especially because the discontent is so big that people is really, really tired of the current government and want something different. So if he does not overcome the 50% necessary to win on the first round, on the second round, I'm sure he'll find somebody else. But we don't know who he is because now the engineer, Hernandez, for example, his numbers are growing. Mm-hmm. And uh, people from Fajardo is moving away from him and supporting either petro or hernandez and fico doesn't have it so clearly because he's trying to avoid being considered uh, uribista therefore he's trying to say i'm not i'm not that mm-hmm. uh, which is also causing some people not to vote for him so at this point yeah. even though the numbers give him as a second i am not putting him on second place at this point
0: and we should remind our listeners when we say uribista we're referring to generally the, the conservative right-wing party uh, in, in Colombia, and it's named after former President Alvaro Uribe, himself a, a right-wing former president uh, uh, in, in the early part of, of the uh, of this century. Um, but as you mentioned, Gutierrez, others, they're gaining in the polls. Uh, so that begs the question, what are some of the factors that might be helping conservative uh, candidates like Gutierrez and hurting Petro down the stretch here, for example, critics say Petro let some of his intolerant streak show recently when he called a columnist who questioned his national pension plan a neo-Nazi. Uh, are those sorts of things having any kind of effect? Do you think, as we head down the stretch to Sunday? No,
1: I don't think. I don't think so. I, I don't think Petro or any of the candidates have really committed any big mistake during the campaign. They've been very careful, and although there've been uh, heated moments there is not really something that you would consider a big mistake. So I don't think those little scuffles are really determining the, 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 the campaign. I think people is really thinking through what they have to do, and they're really thinking through uh, what the decision is. So why is the right still uh, relevant? Because they've been promoting this fear-mongering campaign against Petro, telling that Petro is Chavez. And although he insists, I'm not Chavez and I'm not anybody like Chavez, they insist on the propaganda, and the propaganda has an effect, definitely.
0: Right. And Chavez, obviously, referring to uh, the late socialist Venezuelan president next door, Hugo Chavez. Uh, I am speaking with Colombian political analyst Juan Pablo Salas. We're talking about the presidential election coming up in Colombia this Sunday, and the leading candidate, Senator Gustavo Petro, who is a former left-wing guerrilla. You can read more of our coverage about this election on our social media at WLRN Sundial. Now, going back to factors that might, and this is a good, I think, an important question, whether a factor like this is helping or hurting Petro, his historic vice presidential running mate choice, left-wing Afro-Colombian Francia Marquez. She got the third highest number of votes in Colombia's presidential primary election a couple months ago, and yet some Petro critics call her a liability with the more centrist voters Petro needs. Why? Uh, because she's
1: a little bit more uh, to the left than uh, Petro himself. But uh, vice presidents in Colombia don't have tooth when they are governing. They are basically uh, figures that are ready there in case the president fails. They're useful at bringing votes during the elections. But once the elections are done, unless they give them something to do, like current vice president, who is also uh, the, foreign, uh, uh, the foreign minister, uh, unless something like that happens, she will really not have much power. However, it's a great platform for her to be shown in, uh, to the nation. And the first time that an African-American uh, woman gets to such a high position, I-, I don't think she's a liability except for the people who is still a little mm. bit uh, discriminate, uh, that are discriminating for her color or something like that, that right. uh, is not determining uh, determining the decision.
0: But both she and Petro, as left wing candidates, have sort of uh, uh, conspicuously failed to condemn the left wing uh, dictatorships, as 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 most call them here in Latin America, mm-hmm. meaning Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua. Um, why won't they come out and criticize those left wing? Uh, authoritarian regimes uh, to to help themselves with with the more centrist voters that they might need, for example, to get over fifty percent in this first round.
1: Uh, I disagree with that statement, Tim, because I have heard uh, Gustavo Petro uh, many times talk about uh, Maduro and t- calling him a dictator. Uh, okay. Yesterday during a during a, a debate. He was asked again if Maduro was going to come to his possession. And he said, that's not up to me because the uh, the ceremony will be organized by the people who is living there. Uh, the power. But uh, he insisted in the fact that uh, Gust- uh, Maduro is a dictator and he is nothing like him. So mm-hmm. he has condemned that. Now, why they haven't uh, condemned Cuba openly? Because Cuba has not really been part of the discussion in Miami. That is really, really important. Mm-hmm. But in Colombia, Cuba has not been part of uh, uh, of the mm-hmm. campaign. So if the moment arrives maybe they would say something like that. But uh, okay. there has been no real discussion
0: about it. OK, point taken. Juan Pablo, let's talk a little bit about why the Colombian expat community here in Florida is so strongly opposed to Petro becoming president of their home country. Why are Colombians here, for example, relatively moderate when it comes to U.S. politics? Most are still thought to be registered as Democrats, but decidedly conservative when it comes to Colombian politics. Uh, there are two
1: factors that I think are very important. One of them is that uh, Miami and South Florida became the hub for many of the expats that left the country at the end of the 20th century and the beginning of this uh, 21st century, uh, running away basically from uh, all uh, the guerrilla uh, Kidnappings and deaths, and also from the right. But the majority of the people who was uh, part of, uh, were victims of the guerrilla decided to remain in Miami, and Miami is very close to Cubans and Venezuelans who are also suffering right. from the left, leftist uh, uh, from their leftist governments. So what happens is they uh, get together and they feed each other back with these Uh, uh, right-wing propaganda, considering anything that is not uh, in favor of uh, the uh, right-wing positions to be considered as the uh, enemy. So it it was very, very easy for them to get together and become uh, very radicalized. And I also think that there was a moment when uh, there was a a coordination of campaigns between Bogotá, Miami, and Washington, favoring in Colombia the uribista party right. and in the United States the Re- the Republican party and i think right. that alliance is still going on
0: right and and w- w- you 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 were referring correctly to the fact that many if not most of of the exiles here had an experience, bad experience with the left wing marxist guerrilla army in colombia which is now disbanded known as the farc and, Correct. Uh, and and that 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 definitely colors their their feelings about Uh, politics back in Colombia. And and that that also answers why most Colombian expats here oppose that 2016 peace agreement between the Colombian government and the the FARC, um, which begs the question also, do the do the Democrats stand to lose more Colombian voters here in Florida after President Biden recently took the FARC off the U.S.'s list of foreign terrorist groups?
1: Well, what happened is the FARC are still part of the list. Those who are still fighting Those who are, are still part fighting, of the list. Right. Mm-hmm, right. Yeah, the ones who demobilize are of course off of the list because they're not committing any more crimes now this is a propaganda opportunity for the right and they're using it and it is very difficult to contradict because you have to explain and when when you try to explain something that the opposite side says in a single sentence it complicates your life so yes uh, democrats may be losing a few more votes but I don't think that this is also uh, determinant at uh, local elections. I think that there is still time. And once the elections in Colombia get resolved, and possibly Gustavo Petro reaches power, then that will have a different kind of effect in South Florida. But but currently, of course, everything is tainted by the campaign and they're using every tool at their disposal.
0: By the same token, most Colombia analysts argue that the country really can't move forward unless that peace plan is implemented to address that awful inequality we discussed earlier. Which candidates do you think Colombia give, or give Colombia a better chance of getting that done? The, the leftist Petro or someone like the right-wing Gutierrez?
1: I think uh, Petro is the best candidate to complete the peace process. Maybe a Fajardo, who is the centrist mm-hmm. candidate, would also be a, a good ch- uh, choice if you want to complete the peace process. But definitely, if you move to the other side and elect Federico, you would be uh, crazy thinking that they will continue with the peace process. Of course, they're going to finish by, what uh, Ivan Duque started which is pretty right. much destroy whatever they kind of the and that process.
0: is and that is current current uh right wing president Ivan Duque. But but one Pablo given that describe to us if, if Gutierrez were elected president, um the, the, the more conservative candidate, what would be his take on on the peace plan? What would he do, do you think, to, to to implement it or not implement it if he were president?
1: To to be honest, he says that he will continue with the process and he will make corrections to it. So, I think the main concern for the right wing people in Colombia is to see if uh, the leaders of the ex uh, FAR guerrilla go to jail somehow. That would be like the main reason why they would insist on this. But I also think that narcotraffic money is uh, of being influenced in this case and you have to really solve that particular part of the problem in order to solve mm-hmm. the land problem in the country which is what really generates this situation right. so i uh, i think that if uh federico was uh in power he would try to somehow uh, make uh the leaders of the guerrilla pay uh some more time in jail but right. uh, he will have no possibility to change that because right. he Part of the Constitution, a, more severe, a more
0: severe punishment for, 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 for their actions during, during the Civil There you War. go. Now, finally, in, in, our, in our last seconds here, uh, Juan Pablo, right-wing Colombian politicians, as you mentioned before, were widely criticized for trying to interfere in the 2020 U.S. election here in Florida in favor of former um, uh, President Trump and the Republicans. Do you think that also hurt Colombia's conservatives in this election, that whole episode? No, I don't think that was. I mean, it would,
1: it would hurt him in the future, yes, but not in this current election. I don't think Colombia, anybody in Colombia was thinking about that when they were making a decision about for who to vote in Colombian okay. elections. I think this is going to have more an effect in the local South Florida elections between Democrats and Republicans when the time comes. Well, Juan Pablo,
0: thank you very much for giving us your insights on this uh, Sunday Colombian presidential election. We really appreciate it.
1: Thank you very much for calling me, and uh, say hello
0: to all the audience. Okay, take care. Still to come, easing sanctions on Cuba. We'll talk about the response from those living on the island. Welcome back to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Tim Padgett. Luis Hernandez is out today. President Joe Biden wants to go back somewhat to the Obama era's opening to Cuba. A lot has happened since former President Obama normalized relations with Cuba eight years ago. His successor, former President Trump, retightened U.S. sanctions against the communist regime. The pandemic crippled the island's crucial tourism industry. And unprecedented anti-government protests swept the island last summer. Last week, the Biden administration re-loosened some of Trump's restrictions. It allowed more U.S. travel and remittances to Cuba, and it revived an immigration program to reunify Cuban families. Of course, it's a controversial move politically that has been met with resistance from both Democrats and Republicans here in Florida. Joining us now is Andy Gomez. He's a retired professor of Cuban Studies and Dean of International Studies at the University of Miami. He's also the author of Social Challenges Facing Cuba. Andy, thanks very much for coming on with
2: us. Tim, it's my pleasure, good to be with you.
0: Now, first, just remind us, why is the Biden administration lifting some of these Trump era restrictions now on Cuba?
2: It's very simple, Tim, it's trying to mitigate and prevent Cubans from leaving the island, not only by boats trying to make it to Florida, but the 110,000 plus at the Mexican US border.
0: Right. So this is Im- largely immigration driven, if not wholly immigration driven, you feel?
2: I would think so. I would think so because the concern that Washington has, particularly with those who are trying to make it to Florida by boat or raft, so far the Cuban government has allowed. The the United States to repatriate them, right. but what happens if all of a sudden Raúl Castro declines to repatriate them? It, it will present another problem with us, all the problems that the Biden administration has. What to do with those Cubans then? Right. Do we take them to our base in Guantanamo? Do we let them in? I mean, it's a, it's a tough position to be in. Right,
0: so before we go into how these Biden uh, policy changes could help, as you say, mitigate that situation, let's, let's get the background here. Last summer, President Biden had announced targeted sanctions on some Cuban officials following their treatment of those anti-government protesters. Is there any indication that the regime's behavior has changed at all since then?
2: Well, the regime put in place, as you are very much aware, a new penal Mm -hmm. code that penalizes anyone that criticizes the Cuban government. Yeah. Uh, But I have to tell you, I spent this weekend uh, talking to young Cubans inside the island and they tell me everybody talks bad about the Cuban government. Not now, but for the last couple of years. The issue here is that most people, given the current economic circumstances in Cuba, they want to leave the island
0: right right and the dissident factions that led the protest movement known as the Patria Evita movement after the Latin Grammy winning protest anthem are they still active or have these really uh, exorbitant prison sentences that the regime handed to so many protesters after kangaroo trials really has that really uh, snuffed out that Patria Evita movement or or do you still feel that it's 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 active there bubbling bubbling up
2: well, Tim, I'm going to answer your question by a quote that one of the leaders of one of these groups inside Cuba gave me over the weekend. And she told me, and I won't mention her name and group for obvious reasons, but she told me very clearly that we Cubans and exiles do not understand the Patria and Vida movement. It's not about Patria country. It's about Vida life,
0: Life, right? Wanting
2: to have a better future wanting to have better economic means which then leads them to want to leave the island no matter what so i see the Biden administration policies to be short term Mm -hmm. and then we'll have to see what happens
0: now, most Cuban exiles here in South Florida argue that relaxing the Trump sanctions will hurt that dissident Patria y Vida, or homeland and life movement. Others argue that it could help empower ordinary Cubans by bringing more money into the their lives, into the private sector, as it were. But Andy, what about the Cubans, as as you were talking about before, what about the Cubans who actually live on the island and are leaving the island, as you mentioned, in record numbers right now? What do they think? What do they want?
2: They want a better future. They believe that these policies are allowing Cubans and most recently arrived Cubans in South Florida, those that tend to have families and friends to travel to Cuba to bring them food, to bring them money, it's a little bit too late because there's not that much to buy anymore in Cuba. Cuban on the island are selling everything they can to come up with the money so they can travel the bridge that the Cuban government created with Nicaragua, Nicaragua. now requiring a visa, and then traveling all the way up to the Mexican-Cuban border. Is this going to stop? Is the the new Biden policy going to stop Cubans leaving the island? I don't think so. Mm -hmm. And we have to watch because we're very close to hurricane season. Right. And that can have certainly an impact on Cubans leaving before hurricane season starts. Mm
0: -hmm. How has the Cuban government responded to Biden's easing of the Trump sanctions, do you think?
2: Well, you know, the Cuban government, uh, I've always told you, Tim, uh, for me anyway, it's very predictable. Anytime there has been social unrest on the island, dating back to 1965, the first boat lift, Camarilloca, they've been able to open up the spigot and let some of the pressure up. We saw it in Marielle in 1980. We saw it with the boat rafters in in the 90s and now we're beginning to see it again after the massive protests that we saw last july across the island right. so the cuban government welcomes cuban cuban americans to travel back to kiva and try to help their friends and family but at the same time they realize and i have to tell you back in 1991 a group of scholars at the university of havana wrote a paper And presented it to the Cuban government, telling them, and I have a copy of it, telling them that moving forward, and again, this is 91, moving forward, the biggest challenge the Cuban government faced was to keep young Cubans on the island and the fact that they no longer believed in Marxist ideology.
0: Right, right. I'm speaking with Andy Gomez, a retired professor of Cuban studies at the University of Miami. We're talking about the Biden administration's recent easing of sanctions against Cuba. Now, Andy, it seems that one thing both Cubans here and there do agree on is Biden's decision to resume the Cuban family reunification parole program, which allows eligible Cuban Americans to bring family to the U.S. while they wait for their visas is there bipartisan support here in Florida between Democrats and Republicans at least to re- to revive this program
2: it gets very tricky uh Tim uh it's the, 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 the to answer your question is yes and no and I let me explain why U.S immigration policy is broken Correct. both Republicans and Democrats are in a very difficult position in trying to fix it because you can apply a policy to one group and not apply it to others. Uh, and that's what is happening. It has been happening for many years now. And nobody in Washington, particularly in Congress or in the White House, wants to deal with this issue because it's a hot potato. Yet at the same time, you know, you got close to 111,000 Cubans in the border. I mean, that is getting close to the numbers that we saw in Mario, which was 125, not to mention the numbers that we are weekly repatriating to Cuba that are trying to make it to the U.S. by boat or raft. Mm -hmm. So, again, it's a very tricky position, particularly for the members of the Cuban-American delegation in Congress, as to what positions to tend and at the same time let's be clear the cuban-american community is not as homogeneous as it was before
0: certainly right
2: you know the the historical the historic immigration my parents right those have passed away unfortunately was without seeing a free cuba Mm -hmm. my generation those of us that were born in, in cuba and came very little to the united states I have to say, many of them suffer from what I call, and I've told you before, Cuba fatigue. They're tired of the subject. Right. And then you have the most recently arrivals, not just Mario, but, but I would say in the last five years, mm-hmm. those that are somewhat apolitical, right. they're really, I mean, Tim, it fascinates me to talk to you, this group of people that they know not only... Not only Care about politics in the United States, but they could care less about the political environment in Cuba. All they want to do is get their friends and relatives out right. of Cuba.
0: And when we, but when we're talking about getting out of Cuba, it would it would be it would seem reasonable that everyone also agrees that that could be helped by the U.S. ramping up the processing of immigrant visas in the U.S. embassy in Havana, which has been effectively closed for the past five years. No.
2: Well, supposedly we're opening up consular affairs again. And, you know, the accord that we have, as you very much aware, between Cuba and the United States is to give 20,000 visas right. per year.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: We have never made that quota. I can tell you, we can offer 100,000 visas and we're going to come up short. But oh. then the question will come up, why not Mexicans, why not? other countries in central america or south america or even in the caribbean yeah, so it becomes a hot potato It becau- it's a, trick, hot potato.
0: a tricky balancing
2: act. Right. A very tricky balance.
0: Now, let's let's move on to some of the other san another sanction. President Biden has relaxed is Trump's tighter restriction on remittances. And this is a much more controversial issue. Yeah. But the U.S. government wants the money to get more directly to individual Cubans and not go through the Cuban military led agency that usually processes those yeah. cash transfers and takes a big cut of them. Is the Cuban regime going to make that possible, do you think, finally?
2: Of course not. Okay. There's two ways of getting money into Cuba. Through their own mechanism, and I'm talking about the mechanism of the of the Cuban government. For instance, you can go on certain websites that are con, that are controlled by the Cuban government, pay very high prices for goods, and they get delivered to people in Cuba to their to their homes, to their right. doors. Or you can carry cash by visiting Cuba. Now, the bottom line is there's not that much to buy in Cuba nowadays. And that becomes the real problem.
0: And more specifically, this week, the Washington Post reported that there's a frightening milk shortage in Cuba now. And that that begs the question, which you and I have discussed often, is it possible to get aid like that to the Cuban people without somehow involving the Cuban government?
2: Only only if you have a friend or a relative, or people that are called mulas, as you know, that will travel to Cuba and carry money For families and friends in exile to be delivered to those on the island. But then again, I am being told that those financial support coming from exile are being used to try to get out of Cuba through Nicaragua.
0: But Andy, you know, it, it when we're talking about something like a milk shortage, though, we, you know, despite the embargo, the U.S. trade embargo against Cuba, we do have agricultural exports going into Cuba to a certain degree. Isn't it feasible that we could be ramping up milk, you know, powdered milk exports to Cuba as part of that that system?
2: Yes, we have offered Cuba always them medical and food support and the Cuban government has. Turned us down, particularly during the pandemic, as a matter of However, political pride, right? As a matter of political pride. However, last year the Cuban government bought twenty-six million dollars worth of chicken from the United States. Mm-hmm. The question okay. is where do those chickens go? Yeah, and, and when again, you talk to is... the pe- and when you talk to the people on the island, they tell you that sometimes they make long lines. not to buy chicken, but just to buy oil Mm -hmm. or soap. So it's it's some of the stuff going into the hands of the Cuban government. Absolutely. There's no question about it.
0: And that's that's the dilemma that we live with. Um, The Biden administration also announced that it will allow groups to travel to Cuba on people to people visits, not individuals, but groups. Critics say, though, that that just encourages tourism that aids the regime. But Andy, why do supporters insist it's also an important help to Cubans on the island and to the cause of democratic change there to a certain extent?
2: Well, let me let me answer your question twofold, okay? And let me begin with the second part, so I don't forget it. Democratic change in Cuba could take a generation, okay? Right. You cannot export American democracy or democracy from any other country. That has gone through a transition to any specific country a lot of that depends on history of the country the culture of the country and the individual personal experience that people have lived under
0: mm-hmm.
2: i would argue tim as i've done with you before democracy in cuba was absent before 1959
0: before the cuban and revolution te- started yeah
2: and we tend to forget that mm-hmm yeah. You know, we tend we tend to forget that the problems did not start in Cuba in 1959.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I can argue that civil society in Cuba, the pillars of civil society in Cuba, were weak or did not exist. Right. Now, having said that, to the first part of your question, Cubans, young Cubans particularly, and, and let me give you an interesting data, Tim. There's about 11.3 million Cubans on the island. 9.2 million were born after 1959. This is all they've seen. Yeah. This is all they lived. And even more, 2.4 were born after the fall of the Soviet Union. Right. The internet itself has caused what, I, what some of my friends, psychiatrists, doctors have told me, a psychological trauma, because now that they have access to the Internet, they have seen how the world lives mm. vis-a-vis what they were taught in school. Right, Sir, The contradiction has created an ambivalence among these young people mm. for just right. wanting to live. Yeah, but the iron
0: right, and but the irony being that the the, the internet uh, access came as as somewhat as a result of President Biden op- or President Obama, excuse me, Obama op- opening up, uh, reengaging Cuba. Andy, so uh, uh, Andy, unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, we're at, we're out of time. Yes. But but thank you as always, uh, you know, for for your uh, your contribution to this discussion. I want to thank our guest Andy Gomez. He is a retired professor of Cuban studies at the University of Miami. And you can find more news about U.S. relations with Cuba on our social media at WLRN Sundial. Thank you again, Andy. Thank you, Tim. Still to come, a piece of South Florida history turns 100. Welcome back to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Tim Paget. Luis Hernandez is out today. In South Florida, people tend to focus on the new, what's coming up, what new places are opening, and things always seem to be changing around here. But there are places in South Florida that have been around for a century or more, like the Deering Estate. The stone house was built in 1922 for Chicago industrialist Charles Deering and his wife, Marion. The Mediterranean Revival Stone Mansion mixes all kinds of Spanish influences, and now it's a national landmark. Joining us now to talk about its first 100 years, but also how to prep for the next 100, is Jennifer Tisthammer. She is the Director of Deering Estate and Chief of Conservation at Miami-Dade Parks. Welcome, Jennifer. Thank you so much for having me. I live near the Deering Estate. I kayak by it on Biscayne Bay all the time. I've enjoyed the sunrise Easter masses that are held there. But for people that haven't been, Jennifer, take us there. Explain what you and I know is so special about this place.
3: So it is one of seven heritage parks in our Miami-Dade County Park system. And within that, we also have a a archaeological and ecological preserve. Um, There's about 800 different species of native flora and fauna that are documented here. There are also 26 archaeological sites that date back about 10,000 years as well as our historic house museums um, and a, a thriving cultural calendar. Uh, we have a uh, one of the top artist in residence programs here at the Deering Estate mm-hmm. um, that basically anchors a lot of our literary uh, literary uh, performance and visual art programs that we run throughout the year, and and by the way, oh my goodness, I keep forgetting we uh you know we educate about twenty thousand kids annually with our K through twelve field study trips and camp programs. So yeah, yeah, there's there's quite a
0: bit to do. And my my children took part in those. But for you personally, Jennifer, what when you when you take two steps back and look at the place, how how does it affect you personally the most?
3: So one of the, me personally, well, that, that's, there's a lot that's here. I've really enjoyed taking a deep dive into how so much of what we do culturally and ecologically impacts our lives. It anchors uh, what, what our community is about. Some people sometimes say that Miami DOESN'T HAVE THE HISTORY THAT OTHER CITIES DO, AND I REALLY BEG TO DIFFER, mm-hmm. AND THROUGH SOME OF THE, the EFFORTS of, OF A GREAT TEAM HERE AT THE during THE STATE, WE ACTUALLY GET TO SHARE A LOT OF OUR CULTURAL AS WELL AS NATURAL RESOURCES WITH OUR COMMUNITY LOCALLY AS mm-hmm. WELL AS NATIONALLY AND INTERNATIONALLY THROUGH SOME OF OUR PARTNERSHIPS. Right. THAT'S, I MEAN, THAT'S IT. THERE'S NOT A DAY. That, that doesn't touch on some aspect of an interest, a human interest that we have here at Deering, so thank you.
0: Right, the Deering estate's got all these design influences that aren't originally from South Florida, the Mediterranean flavor, for example, but what makes this place uniquely South Florida?
3: So it is that quintessential Miami place um, in, in many respects, and when you think about how Miami is on the edge, um, on the edge of the Atlantic Rock Ridge, on the edge of Biscayne Bay, on the edge of sort of resiliency planning in the nation. Uh, The Stone House actually is that testament to time and resiliency. And so some of the architectural features that you've also indicated have also been sort of emblematic of how how as a structure and a site and as a people, we are resilient um, and can stand the test of time. Uh, Deering has gone through, I think it's five different hurricanes over the last hundred years, including almost a direct hit from Andrew. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, the the first century of history at this estate saw lots of change from going from the hands of a wealthy family to being purchased by the state of Florida in 1986, and then added to the National Registry of Historic Places. So speaking of those challenges that it faces, uh, what protections does that give this land? Why is that designation so important?
3: That designation is important for us. NOT SO MUCH FROM THE PROTECTIONIST STANDPOINT, BUT FROM THE ENGAGING THE PUBLIC STANDPOINT. YOU KNOW, THE BEST WAY TO PROTECT, PRESERVE, AND and EVEN ADVANCE, I'M GOING TO SAY, SOME OF OUR HISTORIC PLACES, OUR PARKS, um, OUR HERITAGE SITES, LOCALLY AND NATIONALLY, IS BY ENGAGING THE PUBLIC IN UNDERSTANDING PRESERVATION AND CONSERVATION, AND THEN BRINGING THE PUBLIC INTO THAT DECISION-MAKING AND SUPPORT PROCESS. Um, because you protect what you know, you protect what you love, mm-hmm. you you advocate for it, and, and bring others in, so that that register listing, and now as we're going for an official national historic landmark listing, um, really elevates our site. Um, beyond just the community and gets others to engage in in that understanding as well as preserving it for this and future generations. But what sort
0: of pressures and challenges do you face uh, in, in order to maintain that?
3: <laughs> well, there you go. Um, the challenges that we've faced very interestingly since about 2009 have been Um, MAKING SURE THAT WE BOTH UNDERSTAND, DOCUMENT, AND THEN LOOK AT STRATEGIC WAYS TO PRESERVE AND PROTECT THE SITE, AND and I'LL BE VERY, VERY CLEAR ON THIS ONE. Uh, AS WE BEGAN TO SEE KING TIDES IN OUR COMMUNITY ELEVATE, WE NOTICED uh, IN PARTNERSHIP WITH OUR HISTORIC PRESERVATION OFFICE. That King tides were becoming significantly close to some of our coastal archaeological resources. Mm-hmm. And we began a very concerted effort to document the archaeological sites on on the estate. That's now grown to doing um, more uh, active, Strategies to shore up the the stone house. We are going through a full restoration with Heisenbottle and Associates, our Parks Department, and our Historic Preservation Office. We are continuing to document our cultural resources as well as our ecological. Um, Documentation, by the way, is the first. Um, sort of the first step you take in preserving history for future generations. And from that analysis, then you kind of learn what those next steps are. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, you can imagine we are as a coastal site. We are at threat of wind, water, king tides. I had mentioned, uh, you know, hurricanes and storm surge. So all of those things we've taken both hard and soft strategies to shore up.
0: And that also involves sea sea, uh, level rise, uh, obviously. Uh, Does this also, did you mention, forgive me if you did mention, does this also involve 3D scans of of the, the, the Deering Mansion, for example, that sort of thing?
3: Yes, actually, that's part of our documentation process. Mm-hmm. And uh, Tim, what you're mentioning is, is we rece- re- recently received a uh, grant from the state of Florida, which we're super excited about, and we're working with the University of Florida, the Office of Historic Preservation, and our Parks Department to do a 3D scan of the stone house as well as our historic shoreline. And what this will do is two things is one, we're going to understand even better the engineering of the stone house and why it has stood the test of time for over a hundred years so that we can inform other sites like ours, but it also serves as a visual documentation of the site that will help Mm -hmm. us make a determination on what we can do. And if we can do some things to save our shoreline, for example, or if Mm -hmm. we, allow it to go back to the sea.
0: Right. Now thinking about how people have used this place over time, what are some of your favorite stories or anecdotes about the place (laughs) and and how people have engaged it?
3: Um, I'm probably partial, well, I'm partial to a lot of things. Um, I'm partial to uh, some of the ways that you can engage in nature. Uh, We have, since 2015, been really deepening and developing the understanding of our public with more sustainable relationship with the environment. Mm -hmm. You can take a walk in our natural areas with a guide and be far removed from the urban center and we don't always have that in big cities but here you can experience that Um, of course you know interacting with wildlife uh, throughout throughout the years there are quite a number of owls if you ever want to go on a night hike and an owl walk or see dark skies Mm -hmm. um, i'm partial to some of the history with our archaeological sites here Uh, This is one of the sites that documents our first people, our first inhabitants in South Florida. And that is definitely a story that we don't tell enough about Mm -hmm. Miami. And there's going to be some interesting publications that are coming out over the next couple of months, couple of years about our uh, deeper history here at the Deering Estate.
0: Now, those stories are important. My kids grew up visiting the Deering estate. In fact, a painting my daughter did of the Bayfront grounds there hangs in the foyer of our house. The Stone House is a national natural landmark, as you mentioned. How do you think about preserving that for future generations like my kids?
3: Excellent. So I mentioned documentation and looking at some of the ways we engage through our exhibits, but some of the things that we are looking at right now are things that all historic sites should be doing. Um, one is we have shored up our storm surge panels um, and our hurricane panels Two, we are elevating some of our infrastructure from our basement. We have a we actually have a wine cellar here that's below the waterline Um we're uh, moving some major systems up a floor uh, what these will do they're, car- they're more of a hard form of resiliency um, mm-hmm. they will begin to allow us to live with water meaning when we don't even get a direct hit tim um, right. we are impacted by storm surge we get flooding on heavy heavy rain events we get mm-hmm. flooding during storm surge so right. for us it's not about keeping water out it is about how do you live with water? And right. those are some key things, not only for the Deering Estate, but mm-hmm. all historic sites right. in Florida is how we develop this relationship with living with water, uh-huh. getting dry, and moving and adapting to get to right. the next step. Well,
0: that's It's all important and fascinating stuff. Thank you. I'd, I'd like to thank our guest, Jennifer Tisthammer, the Director of Deering Estate and Chief of Conservation at Miami-Dade Parks. Thanks for joining us, Jennifer. Thank you. And that's all for Sundial today. Coming up on the program tomorrow, we bring back a conversation we loved about the Cocaine Cowboys documentary on Netflix. That's in honor of the Sundial Book Club pick for this month. It takes us back at that time to the 1980s in Miami. The book is called Hotel Scarface, where Cocaine Cowboys partied and plotted to control Miami by author Robin Farsad. I'm Tim Padgett. Thank you so much for listening. The program is made possible in part by support from Miami Cancer Institute.